Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. Morning, everybody. Today's passage comes from 1 John chapter 2. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. The word of God abides in you. You have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away along its, with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, better? All right, there we go. I'm technologically challenged, so sometimes I didn't even look whether it was on. My name is Darden Kaler. I am one of the pastors here at Refuge, and um, we're going to continue in our series on 1 John. Specifically, as my son just read, we're going to be talking about uh, 1 John verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Now, if you were here last week or you watched last week or listened later last week, sermon or whatever, uh, you may recall that Joel touched a little bit on verses 12 through 14. And we're going to cover those again, not because he didn't do a wonderful job, but because sometimes that's just the way preaching works, right? Um, the older I've gotten, the more I've, uh, I started preaching, I think I preached my first sermon when I was 19, and I'm 51 now, so you do the math. I can't do it in front of you because that's too much pressure. But, uh, you know, the older I've gotten, the more I've preached, the more I realize you could, you could take a passage and you could cover it dozens of times and continue to learn something new about it, continue to see something different about it, and particularly when it's different preachers. You, you, they get up there and, they, and they're talking, and we all see things in a slightly different perspective. So we are able to... to Oh, children. I'm supposed to dismiss the children. I'm so sorry. I'm stopping right in the middle of what I was saying. I don't even know which children are supposed to go at the moment. So, hey, all the kids, just go out there and crowd into one room. It'll be great. All right. So anyway, we were talking about preaching. Sorry about that, guys. We were talking about preaching. We went so long without kids' ministry. It's like getting back into that process of of saying, oh, yeah, kids can be dismissed. Um, so we're talking about preaching, and, and uh, preaching is one of those things where it, it, it's a, different people have different perspectives. I've always wanted to do a series where, like, there's, there's six, to, six of us elders here at the church, and I've always wanted to do a series where we do six weeks on the exact same passage, all of us preaching the same passage. Uh, that always sounds good to the person who's first because they have the, you know, they, they have the least risk of repeating anyone, pers- anybody. The person last is like, what if you guys have covered everything? Well, see, the great thing about a passage is that's never possible. 
You can never cover everything in a passage. So we're covering this, this passage again, and, and one of the things that, that happens, or one of the things that we talk about uh, in preaching, uh, Trey says it a lot, uh, I've heard a number of people say it throughout the years, is that the, the purpose of preaching, or the goal of preaching, is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comforted, right? Comfort the afflicted and afflict the comforted, or, or, or afflict the comfortable, challenge the comfortable, you might say. Uh, believe it or not, the, the phrase actually was never really originally spoken about preaching. Uh, the phrase originally appeared in 1902 in a book called Observations by Mr. Dooley. It was written by a journalist and humorist named Finley Peter Dune, and he was using the quote uh, originally to talk about journalists themselves, or, or journalism, or, or news, or how news is presented. Uh, his idea is that, you know, the purpose of journalism, the purpose of what we do is to, uh, is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comforted. Now, I don't know whether it's true about journalism. I'm not a, I'm not a journalist. But I, I do think there's, there's truth in it about preaching. That is at least part of what preaching is about. It's part of what we do in preaching, amongst many, many other things. But this, this idea of comfort, comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comforting, um, the thing to understand is that it's, the only reason that's true of preaching is because of what we find in God's Word. It, it's God's Word that sort of gives us that example of, of what we're supposed to do. God's word is filled with encouragements and challenges, uh, both for, for believers and for the world in general as a whole. In fact, that's exactly how John begins the second chapter of this letter, right? He says, little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you won't sin. There's the challenge. Don't sin. However, however, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's the encouragement, the challenge, and the encouragement. It's repeated over and over and over again in Scripture. In, in a way, God's word is like um, personal trainers, so I'm told. If you, if you know me, you know that I, uh, despite my, my intimidating and chiseled physique, uh, I'm, yeah, I'm joking. That was a joke for anybody that doesn't know me. Uh, I, I, I don't work out. I just don't. I know I should. It would be good for me. It's something that, that I, God continues to work on me on, and, and maybe someday that I'll get around to it. But I just don't like it. I don't like the way it makes me feel. You get all sweaty. You're out of breath and, you know, all that stuff. I, I don't like that. So I don't work out very much. But what I'm told about personal trainers, right, what I'm told is that, is that the purpose of a personal trainer is to come along and challenge you to say, come on, you can do one more. You can do one more. And then when you're done to say, you did great. You did awesome. Think um, Mickey and Rocky. Come on, Rock! Punch him! You know, that's, that's the idea. Patting him on the back. You're doing great! Oh, gosh, I'm not going to be able to talk if I keep doing that. Um, you know, the, the, the idea is that it's a constant challenge and a constant encouragement. As Christians, we need both in our lives. We can't live with just one or the other. If it's all encouragement and all flowers and fairy tales, it, it just it, it isn't going to move us closer to being who Christ calls us to be. And if it's all challenge and being, you know, pushed and saying, you've got to do better, you've got to do better, then, then we're going to just be beaten down. We need both. God gives us both. Because despite our standing in Christ, we're often discouraged, and yet we're often very, very selfish. 
We're often fearful, and yet we're often really, really prideful. The list could go on and on and on. But as a result, we need cheers and challenges, the affirmations, the admonitions, the encouragements and exhortations that only God's word can give us. Today's passage strikes that very balance for us. If you recall, 1 John is written to assure believers of the fellowship that they have with God through Jesus Christ. And thus, John calls his readers to reject the false teachers, the false teachers that were coming into the midst of the church. And those false teachers were, were, uh, were Gnostics. We've talked a lot about what that means and the specific definitions. We're not, I'm not going to go into that again today. But just suffice to say, um, there was a denial of the reality of the incarnation. So they didn't really believe that Jesus was a man. He was just this spiritual being. And there was also a denial of the need for bodily outward obedience from his followers. So John explains that belief in Christ should be manifest in believing his truth, in practicing his righteousness, in in loving his people, in, in living with the joy and the confidence that being a follower of Christ should bring. In other words, he says, because God is light, we are to walk in his light. We're to walk the way he does, to do the things that he does, to to say the things that he says, to, to, to follow his example and trust in the Father for our salvation. Resist evil, seek God's glory, love his people. Not to earn God's favor, remember? We, we, we don't do this stuff to earn God's favor. We do it because we have God's favor. God has already bestowed his favor upon us by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We are saved from our sins, therefore... We try to emulate him. We follow him. We demonstrate our love for him in this way. John says these things are evidence that we know him and that we are known by him. It's evidence that we have a real relationship with him. In 1 John 1, first chapter, he uses the term fellowship. He uses the term four times to describe this relationship that we have with God. Uh, the idea is behind the term fellowship is that we have this close, uh, intimate communion with God, maybe you might say. We know him and are known by him in much the same way, in the biblical sense, that a husband and wife know one another. There's an intimacy there that no one, I mean, we all share together and yet we have it with him alone as well. The word literally means to have a commonality. We share with God through Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, John changes the word to abide. This is an interesting word because abide is used 44 times in the New Testament. 40 of those times are used by John in the gospel and his three letters and in Revelation, right? 11 of those times, John 1, uh, 1 John 2, so in this chapter, and two of those times he uses in today's passage. Traditionally, the idea of abiding is to continue or, or to persevere or to live in something, to continue in his grace, to persevere in his power, to live for his glory. Ultimately, this is, this is John's point. This is it right here. God's people are called to abide in him, to live in him, to continue in him, to persevere in him. And those who do, when we do, we, what we do is we find encouragement in his word. 
It just, it comes to us. We realize it's there. We can see it. We can feel it. We can hear it. We can touch it. It's right there for us. When, when we abide in Christ, there is encouragement in his word for us. Let me give you an example. A number of years ago, uh, a non-believing friend of mine uh, sent me an email, and they had recently experienced the death of a, of a friend's husband. So it was sort of a, I mean, who was also their friend, but, you know, it, they experienced this death, and, and in their grief, in this person's grief, they were, they were looking for some kind of comfort. And so they emailed me, and they basically said this. They said, um, you know, I, I've read all the verses about comfort that I can find on Google. I googled the term, you know, Bible comfort. What does the Bible say about comfort? And I found all these verses, and I read them. And yet, having read them all and read them again, none of them bring me peace. None of them bring me comfort. What am I missing? So I responded to her, and my first response was, hey, how, how about we get together for a cup of coffee? And her response was, I'm really, really busy. You know, whatever. It's fine. So I responded again in a second email, and I gently tried to explain to her that the words that are contained in the Bible, aren't, they're not magic. They're not incantations that we say when we feel a certain way or want something from God. They don't work that way. There's something more about them. The, the, the words here tell us about the God who created the universe that we messed up and how he is seeking us out to regain that relationship through Jesus Christ. That's it. The words here tell us about that plan and tell us about what God has done to, to bring us back into the fold. And as a result, the comfort, when we, read these, when we read these words that are in Scripture, honestly, I can read anything in here, almost anything in here, and find comfort in it because of the relationship. It's the relationship that brings the comfort. It's not the words, it's the relationship. The words are extremely important because they tell us about that relationship. But without the initial relationship, without that being in place, these words are just words. You may as well read Shakespeare or anything else. It doesn't matter. But for those who abide in Christ, there is encouragement in his word. As Joel indicated last week, there is some level of uncertainty about verses 12 through 14. There's, a, there, there's, there's questions, right, about uh, the three groups that John is referring to. He talks about children, he talks about fathers, and he talks about young men. He mentions both of those groups, or all three of those groups, twice. And the questions basically are, uh, revolve around whether he's talking about actual life stages. So really young people, you know, the middle group, and then older people, or whether he's talking about uh, spiritual phases, spiritual stages, uh, our spiritual parts of our sanctification, or stages of our sanctification. Our, our, the, 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 the young in Christ, the new, the new converts, those who have been converts for a while, and those who are seasoned and have, have uh, wrestled through the faith for their entire lives. Personally, I'm a, I'm a spiritual side. I go with the spiritual reading of the text. But there is no certain specific or maybe not even necessarily one right answer to that question or those questions. 
Because regardless of whom, to whom John is referring, I think I said that right, uh, regardless of to whom John is referring, his words are still comforting. The, the who's supposed to read this is, is really irrelevant. The words are comforting to all believers. Verses 12 through 14 are written to encourage all readers, both then and now, even us. In fact, in his commentary on 1 John, Douglas O'Donnell refers to this passage as a, as a kind of parentheses in a series of appeals and exhortations, an encouragement amidst numerous exhortations designed to reassure readers about their own relationship with God. It's written to remind us, it's written to remind us that we're forgiven. We have been forgiven through Jesus Christ. It's written to remind us that we know the Father, we know the Father intimately. It's written to remind us that we have overcome evil. It's written to remind us that we find strength and comfort and encouragement in his word. These are present realities for those who abide in Christ. Forgiveness, fellowship, victory, strength. Those are ours right now, today, in this place and wherever we go from here. Our sins are are forgiven, past, present, and future. Our, our fellowship with the Father is real. It's restored. It's tangible. Our victory over death is guaranteed. Our strength is bolstered by God's word. When we abide in Christ, these encouragements are ours for the taking today, wherever we are in our walk with Christ. Right? That's the other aspect of this text. If you look at it spiritually, then, then, then what John is saying is, is whether you're a new convert, whether you've been in the faith for a while, or, or whether you're very mature in your faith, regardless, these promises of who you are when you abide in Christ stand for you. And no one can take those away from you. God deals with us where we are in the sanctification process, regardless of the individual. He comes to us and meets us where we are and says, hey, this is for all of you, whether you're new, middle, or you're old, right? That's how it works. John encourages us to basically do the same here. In our approaches to discipleship and evangelism and sharing the gospel with others and, and teaching and so on, we, we approach people differently. We approach them uh, where they are in their faith walk. All this sort of thing requires nuance, as, as much of life does, right? All of life requires some level of nuance. Think about it for a second. For those of you who have children, um, maybe I should say it this way. For, for me, personally, uh, we've always, you always treat your kids differently based on who they are and, and what their age is, right? We don't treat adult children the same as we did teenage children, the same as we did when they were children children, young children, right? We just don't do that. We don't give them the same gifts for Christmas, right? If you give, if you give, when my kids were young, what did they want? Toys. They wanted playthings. Exactly. Now I can't afford the things that they want. Um, you know, e even if it's just clothes, two hundred dollar tennis shoes or whatever. I, but that's the type of thing they want now. They wouldn't be satisfied with, with toys. We didn't require them to do the same things. When they were young children, I didn't say, hey, can you fill the, fill the car up with gas? They can't do that. When they were young, I asked them to unload the dishwasher. Yes, I still asked them to unload the dishwasher, but now they also can fill up the car with gas. We didn't discipline them in the same way. Remember when they were young, you, you, you say, okay, go to your room, or, or uh, 
or, okay, you need to get into timeout. My kids are not looking at me. None of my kids are looking at me. If I, if I tried to send you to timeout, what would you do? Yeah, you'd laugh. You'd, you'd think I was nuts. One, one fry short of a happy meal, you might say. What's wrong with the old man? He knows he can't put us in timeout. It doesn't work that way. We're not children anymore. He has to deal with us differently. As kids grow through the stages of their lives, we do deal with them differently. Just as God deals with us differently as we walk through the stages of sanctification with him. He meets us where we are to encourage us and to assure us of our standing. And yet he also challenges us. Not more than we need, but exactly the amount that we need. He challenges us and pulls us along to strive to live as his son lived, to strive to be people who emulate him. And that's what we find in verses 15 through 17, where John wrote, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So what does John mean? The million-dollar question, right? What does John mean? Do not love the world. Well, we're going to start a little bit and talk about what it doesn't mean, right? World does not mean the physical world. It doesn't mean don't love the stuff out there. It's all spiritual. Don't worry about anything physical. After all, God created the world and everything in it. Good relationships, food, drink, music, literature, art, and on and on and on. All those things are good. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift comes from God. And so God created those things. He's, he's not saying, don't, don't, don't enjoy the creation that I've given you. After all, God loves the world. He loves it so much that he sent his son to redeem it, right? And he loves it so much that he is going to make it new. Revelation 21.5. So it's wrong to identify the external factors as the main problem here. Because it's just not it. The world that John is talking about is not out there. It's in here in our hearts. Dr. Kim Riddlebarger says this, that John is not warning about sinful things, but about sinful attitude tied to the lusts of the flesh and the desire of the eyes and the pride of possessions. So resisting the world is not avoiding non-believers. It's not saying, ah, I'm not going to have anything to do with people that aren't part of my church or part of the church. It's not saying, don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't dance with girls that do. It's not it. It's not what God is calling us to. Remember, Jesus welcomed sinners and ate with them. He did so, he did so, so often that he was accused of being one of them. A glutton, a drunkard. To be faithful, then, is to, as a Christian, is to enjoy robust relationships with believers, yes. That's very, very important, but also with non-believers, your neighbors, the people around you, the people you work with. Having a relationship with them so that they can see what Christ is doing in your life. That they will know that there's something different about you. And begin to ask questions. So the world is 
all the anti-Christian structures, methods, attitudes, goals, ideologies, and motivations, and so on. Let me explain what I mean by that. Taking things meant by God for good and misusing them. The abuse of the good things, all the good things that God has given us. Wine for drunkenness, sex for adultery, wealth for control, food for gluttony, and on and on and on. Anything can be abused, and and to do so then is, is to be worldly. To abuse the good things that God has given us is to be worldly. John says that doing these things is a manifestation of what's in our hearts. To be worldly is to seek joy, peace, purpose in anything other than God. Not being worldly then means remaining uncorrupted by the world. Be not of the world, but in the world, as Jesus says. Think of it like this. Sin is kind of like an odor, right? It's like a smell. I went to to a, a restaurant over in Earth City, a number of months back, probably in the summertime, and um, we're sitting. I'm sitting outside with a friend, and you know that smell when you drive on I-70, you cross, and there's that smell, right? Y'all know what I'm talking about. Nobody, if anybody's not from St. Louis and they're just visiting, they're like, what? No, there's a, there's a distinct smell. Drive east of here just for a little while. You'll smell it. It's there. That smell, right? We're sitting there trying to eat, and it's there. And so we got up and we went back into the restaurant and it was there. And so we're like, well, this is just where we are. We've already got our food, so let's just choke it down and get on with the day. It wasn't as pleasant as it could have been, uh, as, as most lunches are. Uh, but here we are, we're sitting there, and as time went on, half hour in, I didn't notice it anymore. Smell was gone. I was like, oh. Wind must have changed. But then what happens is another customer comes in and goes, what is that smell? And I'm like, oh, wait, the, the smell isn't gone. I just, I'm just used to it. I don't even notice it anymore. Sin is very much that way. Very much that way. It's, it, it's one of those things that the longer we sit in it, the longer we allow ourselves to to toy with it, the easier it gets and the less, the less it seems like a big deal. The consequence is that what we have to do is we have to immerse ourselves in the truth. We have to dip into his word where our strength and our encouragement comes from, where the challenge comes from, and the reminding of what Christ has done for us comes from. Francis Schaeffer um, used to say this. He used to say that we have to take spiritual baths Cleanse ourselves in the words of God. Get rid of that stink so that we're not used to it anymore. John's reasoning is something that we've all experienced, I'm sure. It's this. The pleasures of worldliness just don't last. Like the world and its desires, the euphoria of sin is, is fleeting. It's good for a little while, then it's gone. You've got to do it again. It's possible to seek happiness without holiness. The world's desires fade and let us down. They're kind of like a drug. They're like an addiction, right? When, 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 you, when, you, when, you take, when you're addicted to a drug, you, you take it, and it's great for a while, but then it goes away, and then you've got to do it again. And that euphoria lasts shorter and shorter and shorter periods of time until you're just constantly, constantly taking the drug. 
It's the same with materialism, with sex, with porn, with popularity, with whatever it might be. They don't last. A very good friend of mine, Roy Yankee of PIR Ministries, says that these things are the things that clutter our hearts so much that ultimately what happens is they lead us away from God's purpose and they leave us with little room for Christ in our hearts. Let me give you another example. Belinda and I love watching the show Hoarders. Anybody ever seen Hoarders? Does anybody enjoy it? <laughs> I, I don't want to say we enjoy it, but, but, we, but we, we do enjoy watching Hoarders. Um, and part of the reason is this, is that I grew up in what could only be described as a, as a moderately hoarded house. I looked for the right word. I spent, I spent way too long looking for the right word to describe the house. You know, moderately was the best word I could come up with. It wasn't overly hoarded, but clearly if left to their own will, my parents would have filled the house with all sorts of stuff. And they did fill much of the house with all sorts of stuff. There was no trash per se. It was, they weren't keeping garbage like... like, like old food or things like that, although my mom does have a habit of leaving stuff in the refrigerator entirely too long. It, it, you know, it wasn't like she was shoving it in the closet kind of thing. And yet, for the four, five-room, 900-square-foot, single-garage house that we lived in, that the six of us lived in, there was way, way, way too much stuff. At its peak... This is just a partial list of the things that my parents had. They had 20-plus antique tractors, 8-plus cars, two motorcycles, and a boat, none of which ran. Uh, they had various spare parts for all of those, manuals, tools, and all the other things that go with those sorts of vehicles. Antique furniture, dishes, yard ornaments, books, magazines, scrap wood, leftover hardware, and other uh, miscellaneous building materials, including... I find this the most impressive, including 10,000-plus paving bricks from the streets of Cedar Rapids that came out when the city decided to go entirely to concrete. I used to take those up at 8 o'clock at night when I was a young boy. I'd go there with my crowbar at 8 years old and pop up bricks on the street, and we'd put them in the truck, drive and unload them in the backyard and then we'd go back down and we'd pick up more bricks and we'd drive back and we, we did that for two to four hours. 10,000 bricks. They're really, really cool bricks. Someday I'll tell you a story about an art project I did with one of them. But um, the fact is, is that why? Why? I say that, and I sound, I sound like I'm just, I, I'm just so frustrated by it, and I am, because we recently just cleaned out my mother's house. She has moved out of it, and she is selling it. Yay, praise Jesus. And, and so I am, I am still kind of frustrated. It is kind of a, 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 a sore spot. But the fact is, I also get it. It's not like my dad didn't have reason for collecting those things. My dad was a really creative guy. He was an engineer, but he was a really, really, really creative guy. And so he had plans and ideas and inventions. And he actually had the talent to make all those things. He had so many thoughts and ideas. And he would collect all the stuff around him that he needed to make those ideas come to fruition. And it created this huge problem for him. And that was this. He was so busy collecting and managing all the stuff that he neither had the time, the money, or the place 
to do it. The basement in the house that I grew up in was entirely filled. And I don't mean just like there was stuff lying around, but like there was a path with stuff stacked above my head that went through. And that was it. You'd wind your way around and get to the, get to the washer and dryer where my mother had a little nook carved out to do her clothes. And that was it. The garage was very much the same way. It was actually quite cool when I was a kid because I'd invite friends over and we'd climb around it like it was a jungle and hide under stuff. And it was, it was all great. But you get older as a teenager and you don't do those things anymore and it becomes kind of embarrassing. To me, it was kind of embarrassing. But for my dad, it was just ultimately very, very frustrating. Tremendously frustrating. He lived much of his life bouncing between okay with life and just terribly unhappy and frustrated. And while there were many, many reasons for that, part of the issue was that he just had too much stuff. You might call it the paradox of the, of the hoarded house. Having everything you think you need to do these things and no place to do them. It's not unlike what happens to our hearts when we fill them with sin and distractions and worldly desires. They get so cluttered. We're either too embarrassed to ask Christ to come in because we're like, I don't want him to see this. Or there's just very little room to do so. It's the paradox of the hoarded heart. We fill them with everything we think we want and we don't have enough room for the one thing that we actually truly need. Christ is the answer to that. He can take the clutter and be done with it. Just like that. Not magically, but because of who he is and what he's done. He can do that. And so I want to give you something today that I want you to try this week that I hope will help you unpack the clutter that you have in your own heart. I'm going to do it with you. I'm going to try it with you this week, right? It's this. Um, when you leave, I want you to do this. I, I want you to read through the passage each day, at least once. Read through the passage each day. But I want you to personalize it. And here's what I mean by that. Instead of reading, um, I'm writing you little children because your sins have been forgiven for his namesake. I'll, I'll use my name as the example. I'm writing to you, Darden, because your sins have been forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you, Darden, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, Darden, because you have overcome the evil one. Get the idea? Do that. Read the first part. Personalize it. Then read the second part. In light of what you've just read with the first part, and start making a list of the things that you cram into your heart, the things that clutter your heart, the things that keep you at a distance, or at least more of a distance than you want to be or ought to be. Take an inventory of the things that you hoard in your heart. The sins, the hurts, the fears, the guilts, the distractions, the worldly desires, whatever it may be. When you finish that list and you feel like, I don't have anything more to write, which for me will take a very long time. Go back and read the first part again and do it again. And if you need to, do it a second time. 
and read the first part a third time and read the first part a fourth time. Read it as many times as you need to remind yourself, to remind yourself that ultimately that is your identity. The stuff that you've crammed in your heart is not who you are. Who you are is those who have been forgiven for his namesake. Those who have known him from the beginning. Those who have overcome the evil one. Those who have known him. Those who abide in him. Those who are given power through his word. Because they abide. Because you abide in Christ. Will you pray with me, please? Lord God, personally, it is a... uh, It's a... It's a fearful thing to think about unpacking the hoard in my own heart. It's, it's fearful because I know there are things that, that I'm ashamed of. There are things that I, I'm, I'm guilty of. Things that maybe hurts that were caused to me that I just can't seem to let go of, Lord. It causes me a bit of anxiety, if I'm honest. Lord, remind me as you remind my brothers and sisters here that 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 is not who I am. That is not who they are. Who they are has been defined by who you created them to be and who Christ has redeemed them to be. Who they are is your people, those who abide in you. Lord, help us to live with the confidence and the joy that come from knowing who we are in you. Whatever may come, whatever we face in our daily walks, Lord, may we always be reminded that ultimately our standing in you is secure and that nothing on earth can separate us from the love that we have through Jesus Christ. The love that you have for us through Jesus Christ. Lord God, I thank you for each person here. I thank you for you calling them to this place, for you calling their hearts to be here, Lord. I pray that as we continue to worship, that uh, you may be glorified in our words, that our hearts may be encouraged and yet challenged as we learn to walk in the way that you've called us to walk. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.